0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Well, good morning. Uh, If I haven't met you, my name is Craig. and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to uh, welcome you this morning. Merry Christmas. Open your Bible, if you have it, to John chapter 1. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, uh, under the seat in front of you, on page 517. We're going to look at John 1:14. Uh, the theme today is let's put materialism back into Christmas, and. Um, I actually was—I had titled this "Let's put materialism back into Xmas, but those who need to hear this most would have walked out, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I'm going to call it Christmas. Let's put materialism back into Christmas. Let's look at John 1:14. This is God's word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we pray that the very purpose of this Christmas season would dawn upon our hearts today. Lord, we pray that we would grasp or be grasped by the reality that you have come to us. You have come for us. You are God with us. Even when we weren't looking, you came looking for us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would show us the glory uh, of Christmas, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the God-man who dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Speak to us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm often at Christmas gatherings and other you know, types of uh, conversations with people this time of the year. Asked, what's your favorite Christmas tradition? And uh, I like that question. You can kind of share what a Christmas tradition, maybe something you do or your family does or something, and then hear from what uh, what they do and what their family does. But one question I've never been asked, but probably will after I'm bringing it up. One question I've never been asked is, what's your least favorite Christmas tradition? What's your least favorite Christmas tradition? And I'm not cynical at all. I love Christmas, but I have a long list of things that would fit on that, but here is the number one least favorite Christmas tradition for me. It's hearing the annual chorus of Christians bemoaning Christmas materialism. At our time to demonstrate joy and wonder that Christ has come, we we miss it, we miss our opportunity and we, we sort of confirm the suspicion that the culture has of us that we're a rather self-righteous, complaining bunch of people. That's it. It is the complaint, the bemoaning Christmas tradition of, of complaining about Christmas materialism. Um, here's kind of how it goes. We say Christmas is not about material things. It has nothing to do with anything material. Christmas is about spiritual things. We say the real Christmas is in the heart. It can't be expressed through anything physical. The real Christmas is a spiritual matter of the heart. The reason I call this a tradition is because this complaint has quite a history. It uh, it goes back quite a ways. I recently uh, read a sermon uh, by a United Methodist pastor, where he was addressing this. And, and this is what he said in part. He said, The critique, the critique of materialism at Christmas, itself is much older than our culture. Even before Amazon and Black Friday, people were shopping and putting their kids on Santa's lap to beg for stuff. Don't forget the holiday classic, Miracle on 34th Street. It's a Christmas movie about a shopping mall. The original version of that movie was filmed way back in 1947. No matter how much we kvetch at Christmas, it's not a new phenomenon. Advertisers were using images of Saint Nick to sell stuff at least as far back as 1830. In 1850, Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote a story called Christmas, wherein the main character Gripes Christmas is coming in a fortnight, and I have got to think up presents for everybody. Dear me, it's so tedious and wasteful. To which her aunt responds, when I was a girl, presents did not fly about as they do now. Translation, Christmas was more spiritual and less materialistic when I was a girl, 1850. According to Ronald Hutton, author Ronald Hutton, the commercialization of Christmas isn't our culture's fault. It's the fault of the Victorian culture. However, he notes this is an ambivalent history because prior to the Victorian era, Christmas was celebrated exclusively by the rich. In other words, the Victorian commercialization of Christmas we abhor was actually an attempt to make Christmas available to the poor and not the rich. In the vein of everything new is old, Hutton cites diary entries as far back as 1600, describing Christians' habits of spending and gift giving, but also their complaints about the rising costs of Christmas meals, Christmas entertainment, and Christmas gifts, 1600. Bemoaning what we've done to the Christmas tradition is a Christmas tradition, at least 400 years old, leading me to wonder if the Magi spent their trip back from Bethlehem complaining about the cost of myrrh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tells us that God becomes man. The spiritual takes on flesh. Christmas is material to the core, thus my title. One definition of materialism is this, attention to or emphasis on material objects, needs and considerations. And I would argue at Christmas we need a fresh attention to and emphasis on material objects, or I would say a material person, needs and considerations. When I say materialism, I I don't mean the philosophy, which is the primary meaning, that the only thing ultimate in the universe is material. I certainly don't mean rejecting spiritual matters, and I don't mean that life consists in the pursuit of material things like wealth, possessions, or comfort. But if Christmas is anything, it is to be the celebration and the acknowledgement of the concrete real, material humanity of Jesus Christ, the God-man, referred to in this verse as the Word made flesh. So let's put materialism, or at least the material, back into Christmas. Now, before we look at this verse, we need to go back. Because we see in verse 14 that Jesus is called the Word. The Word became flesh. But it doesn't just pop up in that verse. We see in the very first verses of John, uh, Jesus referred to as the Word. And we learn some important things about Christ that will will, uh, deepen our wonder when we think about him actually becoming man and taking on flesh. First of all, we learn that God is eternal. Look at verse 1 of this chapter. In the beginning was the Word. So, the Word became flesh, but the Word was from the beginning. Now, why is he called the Word? Well, there's probably at least a couple of reasons for this. First of all, the term Word has, has background in both Greek philosophy uh, and the Old Testament. In Greek philosophy, uh, the Word, or the logos, was the principle or reason that brought order into the universe. Uh, But the, 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 the connection here is probably with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, a word is what you think it is. A word is a means of communication. A word expresses something. A word discloses something or makes something known. Fundamentally, a word is communication. It discloses. It makes something known. And so God discloses himself through the word, Through the Son and the Word is eternal. Jesus has no beginning. In the beginning, He is already there. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, He is already there. Now, this introduction to John reminds us of another introduction, doesn't it? It sounds just like the introduction to the whole Bible, the introduction to Genesis, which says, In the beginning, God. Created, God makes the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, God, and here we see in the beginning, Jesus. The Bible starts with God already existent, God already present, and so does the gospel of John. The the verb tense of the verb was, in the beginning was the word, is a continual action. It's a tense that, that communicates continual action. And so it could be translated, kind of the idea is, in the beginning was continually the word. In the beginning was continually the word. That is, he had no origin or beginning. Commentator Mark Johnston says, uh, it says it this way, in the beginning there was someone who had no beginning in the beginning was someone who had no beginning. So in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, they trace Jesus uh, back to Abraham. One of them, I forget which is which, but one traces back to Abraham, one traces back to Adam. But John traces back to before eternity, before there is beginning and he says that the grand opening of the universe, the word is already present because he was continually existing. It represents, so Christmas represents the eternal becoming human, the preexistent one taking on flesh. It's unfathomable. Number two, Jesus is distinct from God. We learned this about the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word is distinct from God, with God. You can, as an individual, be by yourself, but you cannot be with yourself. With communicates a distinction. And so there is a distinction between Jesus and the Word, Jesus the Word, and God. That distinction is made all through the Gospels. God the Son is distinct from God the Father. There is a relationship, but they are distinct. And so in the Gospels, we see the Father gives the Son, the Father loves the Son, the Father is pleased with the Son. The son obeys the father, glorifies the father, prays to the father, does the will of the father. They are distinct. God is inherently relational. The word is with God, the son is with the father and they love one another. So in God there is a loving relationship in the one God who has a distinction in person. They're distinct in role, the father sends the son. They are distinct in person. So the distinction already exists at the beginning. The story of Christmas isn't the creation of Jesus. He already exists. The story of Christmas isn't the Father becoming the Son and coming to earth. Why do we know that? Because, verse 1, the Word was with God. The Word is distinct. This is mind-blowing stuff. What else do we learn? Jesus is God. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think for the skeptic or for one who believes in, a, in another faith, another religion perhaps, this is the most difficult statement perhaps in the Bible to, to believe that Jesus is God. Other, other religions acknowledge Christ as a great teacher or even a prophet, but not God in the flesh. The Word was from the beginning, why, John tells us, because the Word was God. The Word is God. Jesus is God. He is eternal because He is God. God is one in essence. God is one in nature, but distinct in person, and while we don't meet the Spirit here, later we will, and we have before uh, in the Bible. So. uh, One in person, I'm sorry, one in essence, we'll strike that if we could edit that, way, I just spoke heresy, not one in person. One in nature, one in nature, one in essence, but three in person, distinct in function and distinct in identifiable person. The word is both with God, the word is God simultaneously. This is a profound mystery that Jesus is truly God and truly manned. It's a profound mystery. If you find that hard to believe, which is very understandable, by the way, if you find that hard to believe, then I would recommend you read the rest of John. Because in the Gospel of John, John's goal is to show that Jesus is the Son of God, and and by seeing that, that you might believe. That's what he says at the end. If you are new to Christianity, or you're investigating Christianity, or maybe you've grown up in the church, and you've just got some big questions about things that you've assumed to be true your whole life, and now maybe you are asking some questions, that is fine, because it's actually good to voice those questions, but if, you, if those are your questions, I would encourage you to investigate this claim that Jesus is God by reading the rest of the story. Because if you are unconvinced, make sure you're not unconvinced because you're uninformed. If you're unconvinced of the claim, at least be unconvinced on the basis of the teaching and of the evidence. Jesus is unarguably uh, the most influential individual in the, per, in the history of the world. And so you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to have an informed conclusion as to who he really is. And John says he is God. John says that he is God. The implications of this are astounding. I mean, seriously, if God really came to earth as a person, that changes everything. That changes everything, the creator coming to earth. Verse 3 says he is the creator, by the way. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. So, if the God who created everything by just a word speaks a word and or words and creates everything in the universe out of nothing, if he shows up on earth and starts saying things, what he says matters. If he's God, then there are no words more important than his. What matters? In terms of understanding life, what would possibly matter more than the words of the one who spoke everything into existence? The word word of the one who created everything, he likely knows something about life if Jesus is God, whose words could possibly matter more. Jesus is the eternal one without a beginning. Jesus is with God, Jesus is God. Those are the claims of the text, and that makes verse 14 a mind blower. And that word, that preexistent eternal with God, who is God's word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal coming into time and space and taking material form. As Jesus, the God-man, the uncreated one, takes up residence in a woman's womb. This is an incredible truth. So we see that Jesus is God, but verse 14 tells us he's man because he became flesh. If those who struggle with the idea of Jesus being God, if that's typical for those who don't believe, I think those of us who do believe sometimes struggle with the idea that he is truly human. We kind of may lean on the God side of things, we lean on the spiritual side of things, but we don't really oftentimes uh, fully think about, comprehend, celebrate, or even understand the reason why his humanity matters. We get why his godness matters, but his humanness, not so much. And, and so we have difficulty processing that. But the Bible teaches that, God is, that Jesus is truly God and he is truly man. And that's the glory of Christmas, is that he's a man, that God becomes man. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of God is something that is tangible, that could be seen, uh, that could be touched the person of Jesus that could be observed the works of Jesus that could be heard the words of Jesus the fact that he is truly human that is the glory that the eternal god has come to us as a real human the voice that spoke everything into an existence everything into existence is now the voice of a baby crying in a stable And our tendency, I don't mean to to ruin any Christmas traditions, though I probably will by the end of this sermon, but we just shy away from that stuff. We don't really believe that that this is, well, we believe it, but we don't really know how to relate to it, that, that he's really a man, that the voice that created the world is now crying. And so we sing, the cattle are lowing. Uh, I forget the words. The baby awakes. No, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Why? Because God wouldn't cry. He's a baby. He is crying. He he needs to be fed. The Almighty God of the universe, the All Knowing God of the universe, is a helpless baby. Like any other baby, needing feeding, needing to be changed, needing to be comforted when he cries, needing to learn to walk, needing to learn to talk, needing to learn to read. The Word learns to read. He doesn't just pop out like God baby doing miracle, no humanity about him as a baby, just doing all kinds of, I don't know, floating around the manger, just doing all kinds of God stuffs. Radiant beams, we sing, radiant beams from his face flying off as the God man, as God baby. We, we don't, we don't, we're just uncomfortable with saying he's a fully a man, fully a, a baby. And so we have to have him not crying and some beams emanating from his face. Maybe those are metaphorical. I hope so. I hope they're metaphorical. But God took on flesh and dwelt among us. This is powerful. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this verse, verse 14, and he says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God became our neighbor. The one who teaches about neighbor love is actually our neighbor. He moves in to the neighborhood. If this is true, the eternal spiritual, becomes material and dwells in space and time. And so we must listen to what he says. We must watch what he does. And it's worth our asking, why is this? Now we have to go beyond this text because this text doesn't tell us why. The rest of the New Testament tells us why. Some of the Old Testament tells us why by prophecy. But, but the, John's Gospel certainly tells us why. But why did he do this? Why does the eternal... Become man, truly man and truly God. How does that work together? That is a mystery. We don't fully understand that, but we affirm both truly God and truly man. Well, first of all, he does this because God, at his core, at his nature, is a God of grace. And verse 14 is all about the grace of God. As a matter of fact, it says we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father. The Son comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we encountered him, we encountered truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and we encounter grace. He is a God of grace. Listen, our natural religious impulse is to do good. This is the natural religious impulse, and the story of Christmas just shatters this. This is where we need a good shattering, because our impulse is that religion is about doing good. We want to make ourselves acceptable to God. We want to make ourselves pleasing to God by obeying God so that he will accept us. That is really the premise, the fundamental premise of every religion, is that man seeks to obey whatever the rules, whatever the statutes, whatever the religious rules are, seeks to obey those in order to be accepted, blessed, favored by God, both in this life and then rewarded by going to heaven or some other existence, maybe returning in a better situation in another life or in an afterlife. So you do good now, and it will go well for you. You do good now, and it'll go well for you in eternity because you will be accepted by God. But Christianity, and this makes it clear right here in John 1, is fundamentally different. It says that God is holy. Christianity teaches that God is holy and that he requires that we live up to his holy standards, which Jesus says this way, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. The word tells us that. Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. But we are u- unable and unwilling to meet that standard. And so we regularly fail. We, we sin. We disobey God. We're in trouble because of that. We're in trouble because the Lord is returning and he will judge every action and so we're guilty before God. So, what does God do? He comes to us. He comes to us. He comes to us by not sending another prophet. He sent prophets. Jesus is a prophet. He doesn't send just a prophet, I would say it that way. He doesn't send just another king. He comes himself. The eternal one takes on flesh, becomes fully man, and he comes and obeys his own laws. Jesus never fails. And here's the amazing thing. There, there are these high standard impossible rules, which aren't just obey on the outside, but you have to obey with a pure heart. So the Bible doesn't teach just don't murder people. It says do, Jesus says don't hate people, because if you do, that's murdering in your heart, to be angry or hateful with someone else. The Bible says don't, don't have sex with people you're not married to, a person you're not married to. Jesus said if you want to do that, If you've ever looked and desired to do that with someone you're not married to, you've committed adultery in your heart. So everyone is guilty. And Jesus comes and he obeys those laws even from the heart. Externally, in his mind, in his actions, in his desires, he completely obeys God. And here's the amazing thing. Anyone that will believe in Christ will turn from sin and believe in Christ. All of his obedience is credited to you. What kind of religion teaches that there are incredibly impossible standards that you can never meet, so God will come and meet those for you? Not only does he do that, but as a man, the God-man, he dies in our place on a cross. Adam and Eve sinned, and we have all sinned after them. And Jesus comes and takes responsibility and pays for our sins. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet he comes and he takes our place, dies for our sins. That's why he became human. The reason he takes on humanity is so that as a man obeys God's law fully and then credits that righteousness to those who will believe, men and women have failed God's law miserably and our sins are put on him, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He comes to pay for our sins. Uh, Hebrews 2 17 says this for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way that's John 1 14 he had to be made like us in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God that he might make atonement for the sins of his people he had to become like us in every way so that he could make atonement for the sins of his people That's why we need a material Christmas with a real human Jesus. A real flesh and blood who didn't just seem like God. I mean, I to seem like man, but really was man and really was God. He had to be God to live a perfect life, born of a virgin, uh, with, not born under the fall or with a, with a fallen nature as we are. He had to be God to live a perfect life. He had to be man to pay for our sin. He came to us. He came for us. In our sins, he comes. He doesn't stand at a distance he comes to us. He doesn't say, well, you figure it out. What do you want from me? No, he, he takes the most uh, in, in, just an incredible step towards us by the, the son leaves the glory of being in permanent presence with his father. He leaves that. It comes to become a human and in, 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 it endures suffering as a human, endures all the temptations that we endure without sin. He endured difficulty because he came to rescue us in our sin. He is a God of grace. Christmas is not about being good or being better. It's the exact opposite of that. It's about when you weren't good, God came to you. When you were unable to be good enough, God came and became a man. When you couldn't save yourself, he came to save you. Our Christmas traditions are often built on teaching people that this is a time to be good, especially kids. Oh, I'm not a Scrooge. I don't think I'm cynical even though I'm getting old. Uh, and I like, I like the secular Christmas traditions. They're all great with me. I have no problem with them. However, however, if we're teaching kids that this is the time to be good, for goodness' sake, that they better watch out because all of their, their, their actions are being evaluated. Then, you know, I don't know. I cannot, I, I, I think it would be hard to imagine, be as creative as you can, I think it would be hard to imagine a practice that misrepresents Christmas more than the idea that you receive gifts based on how good you are. That's the exact opposite of Christmas. It's the exact opposite. Christmas is about the gift for the naughty ones, which is everybody. Christmas is the reality that Jesus is nice to us while we were yet naughty. It is the glory. That is the message of Christmas. Have you ever thought about this? On your kid's birthday, if you give birthday gifts, it's pretty typical, most do, you would never tie their birthday gifts to their behavior. But at the birth of the Savior which is all about grace, you must earn those gifts by good behavior. And I get the manipulation of saying, i got to have some peace and cry. The kids are wired on sugar. This is insane. I get all that. And so I'm going to manipulate them by promising them that Santa's watching, they're going to lose all their gifts. Okay, I understand the sentiment. But we got to find a different way to communicate the message of Christmas Birthday gifts are not tied to merit. They're tied on something you did not do. You were born. Your mama should be getting a birthday present on your birthday. She worked. You did nothing. And so on Christmas, you receive gifts for not only doing nothing, but for shaking your fist or worse towards God in anger, in naughtiness towards his holiness and he comes to you with gifts in the midst of your sin, the gift of new life there could not be a tradition that is more uh, opposite the message of grace I read someone (laughs) from a sermon who said the following about Elf on a Shelf I would never say something like this in a sermon, what I'm about to read okay? I just want you to know that This would never appear in one of my sermons because it's harsh, but you're going to remember it. Since 2005, he writes, parents have purchased millions of elves for their shelves. According to the accompanying children's book, The Elf on the Shelf by Carol Abersold. these nanny cam scout elves looking as thin as heroin addicts and as creepy as that doll from Annabelle. (laughs) Sit perched in your home from Thanksgiving to Christmas Eve, judging your children's behavior before returning to the North Pole to narc on them to St. Nick. (laughs) So not only are gifts conditioned upon your child's merit, you also get to encourage your child to bond with a magical elf friend for nearly a month so that then, long before they go through their first nasty breakup, your child can experience betrayal when their elf friend absconds northwards to rat them out to Santa. It's like John says, for God so loved the world, he sent a little Judas to sit on your shelf. He then recommends a harsh response, which I would never say this in a sermon. (laughs) Tell that Judas on your shelf to pack it in early. When the kids wake up some morning looking for their magical friend, you tell your kids that you knew how much they misbehaved and that you knew the little tattling rat was going to snitch on them to Santa. And so like Christ crushing the head of the serpent, you (laughs) interceded for them and you killed the elf instead. Tell them you killed that accusing elf because you love them and the gift of Christmas is theirs, regardless of their goodness. I would never say that. But you'll remember it. The Christmas they said to murder the elf. Why do I share that illustration? Well, you'll remember it, and I hope you'll remember the point. Christmas is about God becoming man to come to us in grace, living the life we couldn't live and dying the death. We should die. He comes to show mercy. He comes to show love. He comes to show grace to those who deserve judgment. And that's why the secular traditions can be fun, and you can have fun with them, and Play around with it all, but ensure that the heart of what you are communicating and living is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the God of grace. That's why the word takes on flesh. He's also the God of empathy. The God of empathy. God comes to us because he is a God of grace, but also because he is sympathetic to us. This is mind-blowing as well. The God who created the universe with a word who rules over all becomes a man to sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, if this wasn't in the Bible, I'd be scared to death to even say it because it sounds, wow, the majestic, glorious God of the universe comes has to become a man to sympathize with us. But that's what the Bible says. Hebrews 4 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We don't have one who is Unable to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. How was he tempted as we are? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is omniscient, so he didn't need to learn something new. It's not saying that, wow, he didn't know what we were going through. It was really God couldn't compute that until he became a man. It's not saying that God learned something because God knows everything. But it is saying that he experienced what we experienced, the struggle in life that we experience, and now... He invites us to come to him to find grace in our time of need. God empathizes. Christmas is about God coming to us so that we in turn can come to him. That's what it's about. Jesus assures us that he understands what we are facing. And one of the big complaints on God can be this, I just don't think he, how could God understand me? How could God know what I'm going through? How could God relate to what I feel? God doesn't understand the temptations that are in front of me. How could God know anything about the fears that we experience as humans? How could God know about grief and loss and disappointment and the various things that we struggle with that make our life so challenging day in and day out? The way he could know is because he became one of us. And so now, he says, in your time of need, draw near. It says, with confidence draw near that we may find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He is able to sympathize because he became a human, so come to him in your time of need. The incarnation is not just some theological doctrine for really smart people in an ivory tower to sit around and sort of argue about. The incarnation is the message that you can come to Jesus today with your burdens, with your struggles, with your fears, with your temptations, and he gets you. He gets you more than anyone because he created you and he also was human and died for you. So what is your time of need? Listen, this is a time of the year that reveals a lot of need for many of us, doesn't it? Some of us are feeling the financial pinch this season. When I... Through my title, I am absolutely not advocating you spend money you don't have. When I use the word materialism, that is not what I meant. But some are feeling financial pinch this year. Some of us are afraid this year. Some of us have a relational conflict that re-emerges, that surfaces every Christmas. As predictable as the calendar, it's going to come again the darkness that comes over your soul and depresses you, the loneliness, the stinging loneliness that you find this time of year when you look at your social media feed and you see all of these folks having the most wonderful time of the year and you're not having that and you feel alone. I'd say two things. Shut off your social media feed and draw near to Jesus both (laughs) who sympathizes in your time of need. Maybe it's a chronic health challenge that is really, really comes clear at this time of the year when there's all of these cultural expectations and maybe the expectations you put on yourself, all this busyness, all of this activity, and you're weak throughout the year, but man, do you feel it at this time of the year. Come to him to find grace, to find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. Maybe it's an uncertain job situation. You are paralyzed with anxiety and worry because you don't know what's going to happen with your job. Maybe you don't have a job and you're struggling with that. Maybe it's aging. You know, each year at Christmas, this is profound, we're all a year older than we were the last Christmas, and it comes when you start pulling out the decorations and you, you start, you know, cooking or shopping or whatever you do, going to parties or whatever it is you do this time of year, you realize, wow, whew, I just don't have what I used to have. And you realize your body and your mind, you don't remember what you used to remember and everybody will give you a pass on Christmas morning when you forget. That's okay. When you get old, I just play the age card. <laughs> oh, I forgot. Uh, so <laughs> you can start really using that to your advantage at a certain point. Uh, but you know what? You're at, you feel it this Christmas more than you have. You've been aware already. I'm speaking to some people in the room. You've already felt this Christmas, man, I don't have what I used to have. Jesus says, come to him and find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. You need grace, you need God's mercy. He understands, he sympathizes with your weaknesses. He wants you to know that he sympathizes with your weaknesses and he wants you to come to him and receive help. So why does he become a man? Well, those two scriptures teach us he does so because he's a God of grace and he comes to atone for us. He's a, he's a God of empathy who comes to, we could say, relate with us and bear our burdens and be our source in a time of need. Here's the last idea that really ties to the whole material idea. God is a God who restores all things. He doesn't just restore spiritually, but he will ultimately restore materially as well. The incarnation shows that matter matters. Matter matters. God became a human. He created the first humans to live in a paradise, to relate with him, to relate with one another perfectly, to relate with their environment perfectly. He created a physical world that was perfect and physical people and a perfect physical environment. And now there's a fall and all of it is deteriorating. Uh, and he comes physically as a person to restore all things. Now he doesn't do that on his first coming. On his first coming, he comes and brings truth and pours out his spirit so that dead hearts could become alive. So he is he is uh, he is restoring spiritually. Now he is restoring culturally. As we are restored spiritually, we make a difference in the world around us, and there is. There is an increasing flourishing that takes place as intended to take place when the church lives as a city set on a hill, when the church lives as a light in the darkness, when the people of God gather for his glory and scatter for his glory. There is an increasing flourishing, but one day there will be a total and absolute complete flourishing, the restoration of of all things he doesn't come just to bring spiritual restoration he comes so that he will ultimately bring physical restoration in a new heavens and a new earth the first coming of jesus leads to our anticipation of his second coming as a matter of fact there's a little bit of a christian debate about advent is advent really about our celebrating his first coming or is it really about us anticipating his second coming I don't see why you have to pick. I'm on both, I vote all the above. Why can't we celebrate both? But there is this awaiting that he will come. And so, that because he came to earth, because he came physically, because he came uh, materially, because he interacted with people actually in a place, it matters that all, it means that all of your life matters. The place where you are matters because God came to a place in the incarnation to touch people's lives. I saw a preview for a Christian children's book, and man, the children's books are so much better than when I was, my kids were little. My grandkids are going to have it a lot better because the, the books now, there are so many creative books that are coming out that are theologically sound. And I'm like actually going, man, I think I gonna go back and learn theology through kids' books because I relate to them. I like the pictures. Um, <laughs> but I just read one, and this is how they said, this is the story of the Bible. This is how they got this. So you can memorize the whole story of the Bible, nine words. Nine words. This is what they said. This story, Bible. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it. Jesus fixes it in his first coming and in his return when he will ultimately restore all things. Why does God become man? He comes to fix everything, he comes to restore all things. God made it. We broke it. Jesus fixes it all that he has made has been broken by us but there is one day when all that has been made will be restored by him for all who believe come quickly Lord Jesus so it matters that he came physically because it is the beginning of the great reversal we sang about that this morning reversing all that Adam lost so Jesus becomes man because God is gracious God is empathetic and God is a restorer who will restore all things. So celebrate the material this Christmas. Don't spend money that you don't have, don't go into debt. But find a way to not only celebrate in your heart, but celebrate in some tangible ways. Celebrate in real presence with real people. That reflects Christmas. That reflects Christmas. I don't mean to bash social media. I actually preached a whole message on this and encouraged some usage of social media. So I'm not just bashing it, but don't spend your Christmas interacting disembodied digitally. Spend your Christmas interacting with your embodied presence in the presence of someone else, interacting together. That's Christmas. That's material, that's physical, that's real, encountering real people. As you are able, give some tangible gifts to show your love. It could even be a gift of service. Maybe you don't have money, but you say, well, this Christmas, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you babysitting. That's tangible help, and they would much rather have that anyway than a gift card to Applebee's, okay? They'd much rather have you watch their kids anyway, (laughs) or I'm going to do this care for you, this service, whatever it might be. So if you can't afford gifts, do something tangible like that. Eat some tangible food. Eat some tangible treats. Don't be weird. Don't be more spiritual than God at Christmas, okay? He's unimpressed. Jesus came eating and drinking, and so people said Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. That was the word on the streets. Did Jesus overeat gluttonously to sin? No. No. Did Jesus drink? Yes. But did Jesus get drunk? No. He did not get drunk. So he wasn't wasn't a glutton and a drunkard, but he was festive and partied enough physically, materially, in the world that that was what people said about him, his critics. Let it be said about you this Christmas. (laughs) Well, if I haven't lost you at this point, we're done, so I can lose you. If you wanna walk out at this point, it's over, so feel free. I've tried to give ample room to offend, and, and, and I'll just end it right there. Jesus came physically eating and drinking. We should do the same. Jesus came serving. Jesus came giving. Jesus came relating. Physically, materially, and so that's why Christmas can be in our hearts. Yes, the awe and the wonder and the worship uh, and the joy, that's in our hearts about Christmas, but that is to be expressed materially through fellowship, through service, through kindness, through sharing with others what God has shared with us in a physical, tangible, real way. Jesus came. To bring grace to us so that we could come and respond to him with our needs, our cares, and mercy from him. Let's go and let's go and respond appropriately to his coming, let's bring. Him. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at GraceChurchFrisco.org.